How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios, right here on Pantheon Podcast Network. This is Daniel the D3 Cohen, your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm an 18-year-old aspiring musician, audio engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my home studio. And, you know, as Billie Eilish and Phineas have shown the world, I can be accomplished by young artists and producers working from home. This show is for people who love music and love to hear about how it's made. There will be cool stories and interesting insights for fans and pros of every kind. Hopefully, the show will be especially helpful for all the people like me working in their own home studios. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work in home studios, so maybe we can help one of you realize your big dreams. In my last episode, I interviewed a very dear friend of mine, Will Magid, a.k.a. Balkan Bump. I had a really fantastic time talking to Will. I've been a big fan of his music since day one, and I loved hearing him tell me how he brings together the organic sounds of live instruments with unique electronic sounds to create his music. You can find that episodes on lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcast.com. You can also find past episodes at our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today's episode, my guest is family, my very own Uncle G, Mr. Gordon Nappy G. Clay. a.k.a. Nappy G, has had a long and fulfilling career. Starting off from a very young age playing drums in school, Gordon quickly found himself becoming a part of a greater percussion community, studying Latin and West African drumming, and moving on to Central African and Haitian drumming, eventually becoming masterful in various percussion instruments and styles. His many influences led him to becoming a significant figure in the New York music scene early on with Dreamspeak, a band founded by students of Columbia University, one of them being my own father, Billy Cohen. Eventually, Gordon moved from the jam band scene to a more soul-oriented band with repercussions and eventually moved into the New York acid jazz scene with the giant step parties and the formation of Groove Collective. Today we took a deep dive into those early years of Gordon's career, which is a really eye-opening experience about how bands form, the ways record labels work, and how you get a record deal, as well as the various components of making a record. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, D3. I appreciate you having me on. It's, uh, it's good to be uh, in this uh, new, uh, new new situation you got going on here. Yeah, man. This is this is really fun. I I did a I did a podcast. I, I did an interview with Will Maggot on Monday. And it, oh, nice. And, you know, we before the recording session, we were just talking about it. It was like, this is so hilarious, you know? 
<laughs> like like we're we're doing this whole thing um remote and yeah. you know you and I right Wait, now he, he, we're sitting on completely different ends of the world. No, he's in well, he's in it, Oakland. Oh, he's in Oakland. Okay, okay, but you still did it through Zencaster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, okay, sat, cool. he sat in his studio, I sat in mine. Um Nice, nice. And uh yeah, it was it was a it was a fun conversation. I'll definitely have to send you that. Um Nice. So I wanted to jump in like obviously I want to get into some of the more later on stuff you did with the with you know your sessions getting into DJing all that stuff right. I do want to ask very and touch on this kind of briefly like what got you into music how how do you how do you find percussion I, I, I think you were what you were a set drummer before you were a percussionist right yeah, I was at, well, a set, okay, so when I was a little kid, when I was about three, yeah, two or three, I was always banging on pots and pans, and my mom uh, saw that and said to my dad, hey, maybe he wants to play drums, because they'd come in the kitchen and I'd have all the pots and pans down on the floor, and I'd just be <laughs> playing them all in a circle, like I had them all set up around me like a drum set. And I'd be using, you know, a knife and a fork as my sticks or something. Um, and so, yeah, they got me a drum set when I was four. And I started taking lessons with the drummer in, in our church. My dad was a preacher. My mom became a preacher. Uh, this is in the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. But then at that time, she wasn't. But she came out of a history of having been a classical singer, an opera singer before she met my dad and she gave up music school to to get married as people in the 60s would do they don't do that anymore uh <laughs> but uh and but man they they had a really love big love for music and my dad loved jazz and and they they had a really cool eclectic taste i, I grew up hearing all kinds of interesting stuff but um it was definitely a musical household so i got my first drum set i started taking lessons I took lessons uh, on the kit and snare until I was about, I guess, until I was like seven or eight. And then I basically just practiced on my own. And then in fourth grade, I, st I, I was started doing a concert band in elementary school and learning how to read music and uh, and you know, concert band you mainly play snare. So mm -hmm. I was I was a snare drummer, primarily at that point. I still played kit, um, but I was mainly doing snare all all through middle school. And you know, I was always battling for. It was one friend of mine at the time. We were battle every day for first and second chair. It was like some. It was just a back and forth. We would be. You know, challenging. You know, you. Ch I don't know if you know how band at this time. I think it still works this way. You, you challenge somebody. So, you got ten drummers. The third chair drummer would challenge the first chair drummer, and you go into the music director's office, and they pick a neutral piece that you don't know, and you have a showdown. You have to sight read. You sight read it, and so you know it's kind of even. It, each person has a, the fair chance to to rise to the occasion or not. And so we would challenge each other every day. And But around the time when I was 12 or 13, my aunt got me some congas 
and I never really played them. I, I was still mostly playing drum set and snare. I had them in the house, but I didn't really use them. And I went to this summer camp at Duke University, uh, and the way it worked was they had an academic summer camp, but at the same time, they also, the American Dance Festival, Martha Graham's American Dance Festival was happening on the same campus. And there was a, an African dance company called the Chuck Davis Dance Company. And they're based in Durham, North Carolina, where, where Duke is. And um, they were one of the dance crews that was at the American Dance Festival. And they had like, you know, 10 African drummers and they were teaching West African dance and the drumming was part of it. And I brought my congas to this summer camp. It was like an eight week camp. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to play when I'm here. I'll start learning. I'll practice and just start jamming. Mm-hmm. And I heard these African drummers and I was like, oh man, I've got my congas. I'm going to go get my conga and come out and play with them. So I brought my conga out and I, I just jumped in as a, you know, very ambitious and kind of, uh, I just not uh, like brash 12 year old. I'd already been playing drums, snare and drum kit for so long. I felt like, Oh, I can do this. And all the drummers were looking at me like, who is this fucking kid? And why does he think he can just jump in here? He doesn't know what we're playing. And they were like, hold on, hold on kid. Great. It's great that you want to play, but we're playing patterns. We're not just riffing around. Like we have parts like, this is a high drum part, this is a low drum part, this is a middle drum part, this is the bell part, this is the stick part, and each part connects to the other one, and then those are there's sections, and then one drum will cue in the other sections. You can't just be riffing over everything. You gotta learn the parts. So why don't you hear you're gonna we're gonna start you on the cowbell? And I was like, the cowbell? I've been playing drums my whole life. And they were like, yeah, your whole life is like a, a half a second to us. Like you haven't lived that long. <laughs> just just calm the fuck down and take this cowbell and, and sit over there and start listening and learning. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I was so disappointed. I was like, I thought I was going to learn congas. And they were like, well, once you do this long enough, you will start to be able to apply the things you hear us doing to your drums and gradually eventually you will be playing the drums but you got to start with the basics you have to learn all the parts first before you and you don't learn the so you don't get to be the solo drummer until you learn all the foundations and i was just like oh man that's gonna take forever they were like yes it's gonna take your whole life welcome (laughs) (laughs) and i was like oh shit i thought I thought I was going to come back home in two months and be rocking the congas. They were like, oh, no, 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 no. You might be, you'll be a better conga player than you were two months before that, but you, we're not going to teach you anything on congas until you've been playing with us for a couple of years. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was at all. I was like, oh, <laughs> I thought I had a... Oh man, this is not what I thought. So it was a real reality check, which is good. It's good to get a reality check. Um, but as you know, what, so what happened was I went to that summer camp three years in a row and, and they, they became kind of like my adopted family. They were all my, like my teachers and 
big brothers and uncles sort of and and I I learned so much from them and you know yeah by the third year I was playing the drums with them and and I understood the language of the drums that that I I didn't understand before that there was this dialogue happening between the drums I I had just heard it as one big jam session and that's why I hate drum circles because most people in drum circles don't understand the language. They're just talking over each other. Um, and that gets very annoying. Um, but so it was a, that process was happening of me learning West African rhythms with these amazing drummers in the summertime. And then I'd go back to my school year and I'd be in marching band and I was doing snare drums, still doing snare and, and really loving marching band. And, you know, it's, I, I ended up becoming the section leader of my snare drum, of my drum section. I, I was the first chair snare drummer and, and section leader of the whole drum section, which is snare drums, bass drums, triple toms, cymbals, and sometimes auxiliary. Um, and yeah, they're like two different worlds of drumming. Like the marching band is so rigid and um, it's all written out. And there's a lot of uh, military type discipline in terms of how you practice and, and how you do group exercises and stuff. It's a very different flow from the African style of having these conversations that you, but right. in both, both worlds, you have parts you learn, but it's a, in the African world, you're memorizing, uh, you're, you're learning the foundation and then you're kind of riffing around within it. And then but with the, with the marching band, you, you have a written piece of music that you play so much that you internalize it and you memorize it. And then, so with marching bands, the drum section always has to learn the whole, like whatever you're going to play. If it's a halftime show of a 20 minute, halftime show you the marching band the drummers learn first everything because they have to play while the band is just learning how to do the marching the steps so the, the band doesn't even start playing the music first they just do learn the steps mm -hmm. while the drummers are playing the parts so it's uh so there's a month of drum camp before marching band actually starts so it's like I would do my summer camp with the African crew, come back for drum camp, and then marching band camp would start. So I would have really busy summers, you know. I was like full on deep in it. So but the whole time I was starting to transfer some of my African drumming skills to the congas, even though most of the the African stuff I was learning was on djembe. They had different tune. They had a high djembe, a low djembe. So it worked the same as the congas in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just, and I was playing along to music I love, like Tito Puente and Santana, and that kind of stuff. Just kind of getting into the the outer edges of Latin music at that point. Um, so then, when I came to Columbia University in New York, um, I was playing congas. My first week of school, like orientation week, I was playing congas on one, there's one fountain and opposite on the other side of the plaza, there's another fountain and there was another guy playing congas. And I noticed that his, what he was playing was, 
different from it wasn't Latin. It was some, and it wasn't exactly African. And I was like, I don't know what that is. It was definitely patterns and cool parts. And I was like, that sounds really cool. So I took my drum over there and I introduced myself, said, hi, my name's Gordon. He said, my name is Danny. And I said, what kind of stuff are you playing? He said, I'm playing Haitian music. I'm playing music from Haiti. And I was like, wow, that's so cool, man. Um, and he's like, listen, I, I'm learning all these parts. I'm learning the high drum, the low drum, middle drum part. I need somebody to practice with. Maybe you can practice with me and I'll teach you this stuff as I'm learning it. And you can play the other drum parts and we'll just kind of learn how to do this together. And so that's, I couldn't afford the drum lessons from his teacher. His teacher was so expensive at that time. Mm-hmm. So I, he was my, he was like my free drum coach sort of. And we started jamming and playing and learning all these Haitian rhythms together. And because I had been playing drums already for so long, I was more of a natural drummer than him. He he hadn't played drums before, but he had a very good analytical mind, and he understood drums from kind of like a, a technical side, and not it didn't have the chops or the feel necessarily. But he if he he could get it, and once he got it, he really could rock it. Um, and so that we kind of developed this whole repertoire of Haitian stuff. And then after a while, uh, his drum teacher found out that I was getting all these free lessons from him and he got really mad. He was like, this guy needs to be paying me. <laughs> and, uh, so, and he said, you, you, I got to meet this kid. I don't, I don't like this, that this kid is learning drums for free. I want to see if he's learning it right. So this the he and his wife this teacher John Amira and his wife were they held Haitian dance classes at this this dance studio downtown and he invited me to come in and just kind of test me out and he was a real stern you know he wasn't he just looked very unhappy when he saw me <laughs> so but he started playing and I just jumped right in I knew the parts and he was like he had to gradually finally say, okay, this kid's actually learning the real thing. I can't, I gotta, you guys are all right. I can't be mad. At least you didn't, he was worried that we were bastardizing his actual teaching and he doesn't want people to learn the wrong thing because these are traditional rhythms from Haiti that they use in, in voodoo ceremonies. And he's like, you know, this isn't a game. He's like, if you're going to play this stuff and, and you're going to tell people you learned it from my teaching or even from one of my students, I want to make sure you're getting it for real because I'm trying to do this for real. And so I started playing dance classes with them and that turned into kind of a full-time thing. Me and Danny, we took those Haitian rhythms outside of that context and we made a band called Repercussions. Um, And we did some gigs around Columbia acoustically just me and him on congas then we start we added a acoustic guitar player and a organ player and and, you know gradually it kind of turned into this other thing and when we we got a singer and we kind of put figured out a way to convert some of these rhythms into kind of a dancey vibe and we did our first gig official gig was for the birthday party of Haile Selassie's granddaughter Liz Selassie and she she was going to to Columbia. She was going to Barnard, um, and she lived in in this dorm called River. And we we did our gig our first gig in the basement of River, 
and it was an awesome party and it turned into this whole like scene of like oh these guys play Haitian drums and and you know gradually we started to build this kind of cool scene out of it and at the same time John Amira the teacher and his wife his wife was a a certified voodoo priestess a mama they started to invite me to come play um voodoo ceremonies with them in Brooklyn and you know that was a whole crazy introduction into a world I had no idea about like uh you know I learned so much of it's too much to go into that's a whole separate podcast but uh it was a real eye opener for me to see how these rhythms work in reality like not just in an abstract way but this is how it's been applied historically and the funny thing was like a lot of those most of the Haitian rhythms they come from the Congo which is Central Africa mm-hmm. so I had been learning West African before that and now I'm learning the Central African and at the same time all this was happening I'm in New York City which has an amazing Latinx population Puerto Rican Dominican uh, specifically uh, there's all kinds but Puerto Rican and Dominican are dominant and there's a lot of Cubans too and they would have these jam sessions every Sunday at Central Park they still do every Sunday the great Cuban jam session it's like Cuban half Cuban half Puerto Rican and if you know I was going to those jam sessions on Sundays and really getting into the the clave the Cuban clave and I right it, it's it's a different clave from the West African. It's like the the beat the one is flipped on the other side. So where you hear the one is is opposite of where you hear it in the Congolese stuff. Um, so it's like a kind of a mind fuck to switch your head around like how, where you hear the one. Um, but it's good to learn. It's definitely like you, as a percussionist, you got to learn. It's like another language. You're like, okay, I I speak French. I speak German, I speak, you got to learn these various ways of talking on the drums. So, you know, that was definitely kind of my early percussion time was, you know, switching between Haitian and, and Cuban. Yeah. And at the same time, there was a whole jam scene going on with dream speak and before all that. So like before I got deep, deep into the Haitian and the Cuban, I was more on the kind of jam rock vibe, jam, rock funk, jazzy rock, psychedelic funk with dream speak. And that was great too, because that was more free. Like I had all these things I'd been learning that were so rigid. And so you had to kind of do it by the book and stay within these formats. And with that crew, there were no rules. It was kind of like, let's just see where we go and keep the groove happening. And I was really lucky because Tom Kalen, the drummer, also had a real deep interest in African music. And he it, he put a lot of that into his rhythms without even making it obvious so, and he also put me on to a lot of cool music. Like the first time I ever heard Fela Kuti was from Tom. Tom played it for me. Uh, he had the Fela Kuti Ginger Baker record. And Great record. It, it was like, 
But yeah, it was an eye opener for me though. I was like, I think eighteen, and I was just like, what the fuck? Like, wow. I I knew about Cream as a rock band, mm-hmm. but to hear Ginger Baker playing with this African crew, this Nigerian crew, was like, whoa, this is some other shit, man. Like, wow. Um, right. And and a lot of the the kind of rock music that Tom listened to had heavy percussion, and I I had already you know been a huge Santana fan my whole life. And I, you know, so that was in there. But, you know, Tom definitely opened my eyes up to some other percussive avenues, including Brazilian stuff. And, you know, so and but yeah, with with Dream Speak, it definitely uh, was a kind of more open ended and experimental and free vibe, which was great. But after two and a half years of that, I, I could feel my I wanted to go more into the funk soul hip-hop energy and that band was not gonna go there because that's just not who they were that wasn't their history or their culture per se Mm -hmm. they were totally open to it they're great open-minded people that just wasn't what they came out of so part of my evolution as a person was to go in that direction and i started growing my dreadlocks and you know and that's when i became nappy g and like you know just kind of everything kind of and and the repercussions crew the band that me and danny had from after that time was evolving our rhythm section was also starting to jam downtown with some horn players at this club with a dj that was a scene called giant step and we were kind of freestyling over the dj and i was emceeing and that turned into the band Groove Collective. We started playing outside of that club without the DJ. And yeah, that so and and the conga player, the funny thing, there's another overlap. The conga player in Groove Collective was is, is Chris the Burge. And I was playing timbales and bongos and Chris was playing congas, but me and Chris knew each other from the jam band scene. When Dreamspeak used to play at Nightingales, there was a guy named Dave Geller, an awesome percussionist from Boston who used to come sit in with us, Freaky Dave. And he was friends with Chris. And and so Chris and he, I, I met Chris through Dave, but Chris lived downtown in St. Mark's Place at that time. And I, so Chris would come jam with Groove Collective and I mean with, with Dreamspeak and sometimes with Spin Doctors. And then later on when we were, uh, when you know, after I left Dreamspeak, I was doing uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican drum lessons. Me and Chris were sharing lessons. We would put our money together and buy a lesson from Jerry Gonzalez, may he rest in peace, the master drummer who was Puerto Rican, also a great trumpet player, flugelhorn player. Uh, and we, so we were learning like traditional Cuban wawanco rhythms and you know a lot of different. And, and Puerto Rican Bombay and Plena and these kind of things like from Jerry. And then we would jam at Chris's house and Chris had a drum set. So Chris would play drum set and I'd play percussion or then we'd switch off or then we'd both play congas or then he'd play congas and I'd play timbales. So when I started this thing at, with Giant Step at, at the club Giant Step with the other musicians and the DJ, I invited Chris to come over and jam and it just turned into this thing. Like the, the first it was just me on percussion and a flute player downstairs and then 
<laughs> I, w- I came, well, how it really started was I came, I was handing out flyers. I was a promoter for a club SOBs and this new party started giant step on, on a weekly basis. And they had these really cool jazzy flyers and they, it was featuring music from jazz times, but with, with hip hop beats. And that was the concept. And I, I came from a rehearsal once to the, to the first, maybe the second party. And there was a flute player on stage with a DJ and the room was empty. There was nobody. There was one guy there who was doing the centipede across the floor, like a break dancer. <laughs> was in it. Just one, one dude and doing the centipede back and forth. <laughs> and it, so I went up to the, I had the congas with me from the rehearsal. I went up to the flute player like, Hey, do you mind? If I sit in, can I jam? He's like, yeah, cool. And I asked the DJ. He was like, yeah, why not? Nobody's here. Who cares? Let's, yeah, let's lock it. Why not? <laughs> so me and the flute player started playing. And then we switched to another location, which became the real heart of Giant Step. It's Cafe Metropolis. And a couple, one time, the other guys, the bass player, Jonathan Marin and Genji Sureshi, the drummer, they came with me from the rehearsal and I said, you got to come check out this vibe. And they really liked it. And so Genji asked the DJ, hey, if I brought a little drum kit, like a small kit, would you mind if I sat in? And the DJ was like, yeah, let's try it. Fuck it. So the Genji brought his little drum set. And now it's drums and percussion and flute. And then Jonathan, our bass player, was like, hey, man, I want to jam. I'm going to bring a little bass head. So he brought a little bass head. So now we have a really cool rhythm section going downstairs. Oh, and then a keyboard player showed up one day. <laughs> so funny. It's all sure. He had just moved to New York from, from Cincinnati, Ohio. He went on later to write, be a big pop songwriter. He won Grammy. He, he wrote that song Smooth for Santana and, and uh, Rob Thomas. Uh, but anyway, it's all, when he first showed up in town, he comes to the party and he's got like a like a 1970s like disco suit with a big open collar and a giant gold star of david <laughs> <laughs> and then like he's like yo i want to jam with you i'm funky <laughs> <laughs> and we were just like uh okay he's like you'll see <laughs> and then he sets up his keyboard and all of a sudden we're like oh this dude is funky holy shit we are really we're funky now all right <laughs> and we started doing this thing where the dj would drop out and then we would keep playing and we started just you know getting this cool vibe going and then upstairs in this club was a restaurant and it was more of like a like a nice kind of high-end uh seafood restaurant and they had a jazz band playing up there it was just but you know like more acoustic jazz it was like a horn players and a vibraphone player and once and the place was our, our party was getting packed everybody would walk through the restaurant to come down to this club downstairs and so we had it going on we had the first this was the beginning of the acid jazz scene in new york this is like 1990 91 and we kind of got the concept from london london was doing it but not with live musicians so the, one of the horn players, when they had a break, the set break, Jay Rodriguez, he came, walked down the stairs to see where all these hot girls were going. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
He stuck his head in and was like, oh, my God, there's a real scene. There's a party and the place is packed. And and upstairs was, like, quiet and empty. And so uh, he came up and he's like, hey, man, do you mind if I just jam on one song? And we were like, yeah, come on, why not? And he was amazing. We were like, oh, shit, this guy can play. And he was having so much fun. And then one of the other guys from the band came down to get him because he was missing. They were supposed to be playing upstairs, and Jay was, they needed him. <laughs> and, this, and Fabio, the trumpet player, he came down and was like, oh, he's from Italy. He's like, oh, this is so lovely. I think I will stay and play with Jay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now Fabio and Jay are trumpet and sax, and we got our flute player. And then now the the, the trombone player came down was like, what the fuck, you guys? We have a gig upstairs. Oh, I see what's going on. Hey, I'm, I'm going to stay down here too. <laughs> so oh, now it's perfect. like, now we got a full horn section. Bill Ware on the vibraphone, he came down. It was Bill Ware's gig upstairs. And Bill's the oldest, it was our, he's the oldest guy in our crew. And he's a well-known jazz player, you know, bebop kind of badass mm-hmm. you know and he came downstairs and he was pissed man he's like where are my fucking horn players what is going on <laughs> he's like oh okay i see i see you guys are trying to take my gig okay all right <laughs> he's like just give me a minute he got some help he slept down his vibraphones <laughs> now we're crammed onto this tiny little stage <laughs> It was only made for like four people. Now we got 10 people crammed onto the stage and the room is packed with like 300 people. The room was made for like 50 people. It was just packed, but it was had this energy, you know, it was like, whoa, this is hot. And all of a sudden now we got a vibraphone player and it was like, oh, and this guy knows so much jazz chords and, and voicings. So we had these bebop horn players and we got this kind of funk soul rhythm section with a Latin element going on, and a DJ. And and the DJ's playing really cool stuff like Lonnie Liston-Smith expansions and, you know, all this, you know, kind of open-ended stuff. They had groove sections, and we would kind of comp in with the grooves, and then the DJ would drop out, and we would keep it going and take it to another place. And then the DJ would come back in with something else, and we kind of just vibe with each other. And it became this really fun weekly jam session. We didn't have songs. We just kind of, but we started to get these riffs and patterns and grooves that we understood between sections. So like the rhythm section would be doing this thing. Then the horn section would call in a thing like, and Richard was kind of leading the horn section because he had been their first, the flute player, mm-hmm. Richard Worth. And, and he also, Richard was really big on, if we got a good idea, happening with the horns Richard would write it out he was good at at transposing music immediately to a chart so when something cool would happen in the jam Richard would write it down transpose it right away to a chart and so we started to have these cool sections that he could just from week to week say hey here's this thing we played last week let's run it he would put it up on a chart and all these horn guys could read like sight read like crazy so Anytime Richard would put up a chart from something, they just start playing it, and then they could riff around within that. And and then Bill would be like, "Oh, let's you know, let's change the key, you know, modulate." He would just call, it, and then it's all you know between. It was like a really cool interactive communication thing happening. And then sometimes on the rhythm section, we would just like we'd say, "Okay, bass and drums, drop out, boom." 
you know, okay, percussion and keys only. Boom. You know, we would just do kinds of cool like pairings and just have fun with it. And it became this really nice interplay happening to the point where somebody one one of the guys who threw the party was like, You guys should do this outside of our party. You should actually do this just as a band. And we were like, Really? And they were like, yeah, man, you're ready. After like six months or a year of us doing that, we had a thing. And so we did our first gig outside of of the club, and, and we didn't have a name yet, and we didn't even have songs. We just were taking these riffs and grooves we had kind of been jamming on, and we, we started, we, we kind of turned it into a set at this club called Nell's. And at, for the first gig, we were called the Giant Step Tet because the party we played was called Giant Step and we just called it the Giant Step Tet. But that we were like, we need another name that's not from Giant Step. And I said, hey, we're grooving and we, we don't have a leader. We're just kind of this amorphous collective. So let's just call it Groove Collective. And everybody was like, oh, that's no, that's terrible. No, <laughs> no, no. But they were like, but, but okay, temporarily, we're going to think of a better name. For now, we'll say that, but that's a just a just stupid, obvious name. No, <laughs> uh, we'll call it that for this first gig, <laughs> or the second, the second gig. And I was like, great. And so every week we'd go by, and we'd start to get more songs, and figure out start. We started writing original stuff and figuring out parts and having practices. And I kept saying, "You, what's the name, guys? Did you come up with another name? And they were like, no, no. It's, we're, I guess we're stuck with this name. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, it's a great name. They were like, no, it's, it's it terrible. It is, though. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, now, now they can all admit it's a good name. But uh, for the first year, people were not happy. They were like, mm, mm, may, no, not quite. We'll, we'll, we'll think of something. And I kept and I kept saying, "All right, well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. What yeah. is it?" And they were like, uh, "They were like, no, I guess it's it." Oh no! <laughs> and and asked, "Go ahead, go ahead. What?" No, I get what you mean about the names. My my own band, they wanted to change the name for five years before they were yeah. like, "Fine." <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? It's like totally. It's it's creative people, and they always think I'm gonna have a flash of inspiration. It's gonna come to me. Just, just not right now, but it is going to come to me, but that's not it. <laughs> right. But after a while, you know, when you play enough gigs and you start to rock it and people, the crowd starts to know you by that name, it gets harder to change it. It's like, okay, that's what they know us as, so it would be stupid to change it now. Um, so, yeah, we started doing gigs in, in downtown clubs, and we got a really cool uh, – had a weekly residency at this club called Sybarite in Soho and we could just do what we wanted. And we, you know, we, we had some, we would do long sets. We would do two sets and each set would be like, you know, 90 minutes to earn and sometimes two hours. And, but we would just flow and we, we had some songs and then sometimes we'd just be jamming. We just, somebody would just start a riff and we just kind of come in. We didn't have a leader. It was very amorphous in that sense. Everybody was mm-hmm. a leader. Um, and one of the things we did that was really smart was we um, we decided to split our publishing. 
we we had studied a lot of other bands and what made bands split up and break up oftentimes was the disputes over publishing and because of the way we wrote and contributed if somebody had an idea then another person would throw another little thing and then it was just kind of like you know how can we say that one person came up with this melody you can't how can you say that one person came up with this groove or these you know except for lyrical stuff it was all a group composition so we just we had a long meeting the meeting took like 12 hours we were famous for long meetings it was like being in congress <laughs> and like half the band wanted to just split the publishing and the other half was like no no we need to just do it the traditional way and after you know i think around the 10th or 11th hour the guys who who didn't want to split it were just like fuck it fine we're tired man let's just yeah we just want to go home okay <laughs> we're going to we're we're going to split it we're going to split it fine so we're we're doing this gig and a guy comes to see us young dude who was working as uh donald fagan's assistant uh, from steely dan donald fagan mm-hmm. from steely dan and and he was uh this kind of the studio manager for donald's uh, st- uh studio called river sound river sound was uptown in manhattan 92nd street and he um he loved us this guy scott scott barkham still a dear friend and scott actually ended up becoming the the new keyboard player for repercussions for our other band but anyway yeah all through this time me and genji and jonathan are still playing in repercussions which is more had become more of like a soul new soul r&b type thing much more formula much more uh set in stone all the like groove collective was our kind of freestyle escape um and so scott he said man i love these guys and so at the time, uh, Donald Fagan was working on some kind of project. I th- one of his, so- I think it was his solo album, Kamakuriad, or th- I-, I can't remember which one it was. Right, that, but that Kamakuriad came out in '93. Pro- it's probably the one. Yeah, yeah, and, and those guys worked. Donald works slow as hell. I mean, Donald would take two years to make an album because he's just a perfectionist, and he had the studio, and he just, you know. But so Scott. The guys who were producing Donald's record were the same guys who produced all the Steely Dan records. It was Gary Katz as the producer, and the engineer was Elliot Shiner. And Scott brought Gary Katz down to see us one time at Sybarite and see Groove Collective. And he was like, Gary was like, I love this. This is great. And Gary's an old school Brooklyn dude. And we we were excited to meet him just because he's you know produced Steely Dan. We were like, that's amazing. He's mm-hmm. like, listen, guys, so my best friend from childhood is Lenny Warnaker. We used to play stickball in the street. <laughs> I'm gonna talk to Lenny. <laughs> I'm gonna call Lenny and we're gonna get you a deal. We were just like, what? <laughs> we didn't even we didn't barely had songs like formulated, and. Yeah, it turns out that <clears throat> Gary's best friend was the president of Warner Brothers at the time, uh, Lenny Warnerker. And Mo Austin was the vice president. Mo Austin was the guy who signed Frank Sinatra and he to, to to reprise and help and he got Frank Sinatra reprise. A lot of people don't know that Reprise Records was Frank's vanity label. And when this young kid came out named Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> Mo Austin was like, 
Frank, you got to sign this kid. And Frank was like, let me hear his music. He's like, ah, I can't stand it. I don't know what it is, but if you say it's good, I'll sign him. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so they signed Jimmy. Their first signing was Jimi Hendrix, and the second signing was Frank Zappa. <laughs> so we're, we're just like, whoa, reprise is kind of cool. So, so Lenny, uh, so okay, yeah, Gary brought he brought Lenny down to see one of our sh- shows, Lenny Warnicker from Warner Brothers, and then Lenny brought Mo Austin. He flew flew Mo Austin in from California. These then they're both old. These are all older guys. Like we were in our twenties, and Gary Gary was in his late fifties. Yeah, probably late fifties, and mm-hmm. and Mo uh, Mo Austin was probably in his early mid sixties. Um, but they loved it, and they were just like, okay. And we and then they said, what about this club scene you guys play at this giant step thing? Let's go check that out. And they went to check that out, and they had a little powwow, and they were like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sign you, get you a deal, and you're gonna record. We're gonna bring a remote truck in. We're gonna record it at the club. To get this vibe because you need this vibe it's, it's not a studio thing we want to get the vibe but we're going to have a remote truck yeah so they brought in the rolling stones remote truck <laughs> all of a sudden we had a record deal from out of nowhere we were just like what is going on what the fuck is happening <laughs> genius so anyway, it comes now, down who you know it's always who you know man it's crazy you know what that's been that's been the common theme i've done this is my third interview right now, but one of the one of the thing one of the things that that I'm I'm glad you brought up, which has been a common theme with everyone that I've interviewed, you, uh, Will, and then this guy Jerry Danielson, who's actually, uh, he's the chief sound designer, one of the uh, co-founders of our uh, podcast network, a company called Pantheon Media, um, mm. and you know it all just chalks down to people you know. And that's yep. it's it's really definitely a thing. I loved that Will, um, and this came up when I asked him about his time in Solomon Burke's band, like right. the, the sort of double ended like who do you know? And if you have two forms of, um, you know, verification, like if you have one guy vouch for you or one guy recommend right. you, and then another guy right. vouch for you, you, you then right. basically have the gig. Um, You're golden, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So now. You and I have talked about this before, and I've been doing this for years. But lately, lately because of lockdown and everything, I take long walks anywhere from two to fifteen miles. I took a fifteen mile walk on Tuesday, and on almost every single occasion, I always have on the first. Um, I always have on the very first Groove Collective record, so I I kind of uh. know it back to front now. Now which is kind of great. Right, right. So one nice. of the things that I did want to ask, and I was especially, um, I'm especially intrigued to hear this from you because now that you brought it up, how much, did you do any of it in studio? Because some of the songs like, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Nerd, it was a combination. Nerd, Nerd definitely sounds like it was recorded in studio. I think Head also does. Yeah, um, it's a maybe, combination. It's, it's a, we basically did, Half and we we did all the songs live and we did them in the studio and then they kind of did a mix and match comping between the two, um, so it was like like Rent Strike actually is the one that was probably the most live. Gotcha. Rent, yeah. As far as that came pretty much from the club remote truck. A lot of but the other songs were mo- like kind of like half the song or a 
quarter of the song would be live and then the rest would be studio or and then we also did a thing where we um we we had we rented out a really big room and had a party like we we created a party vibe in a studio too mm-hmm. we we like brought a, we invited a bunch of our friends up to just have a free hangout and we had you know room mics everywhere and actually were going direct from the stage in the room so we we kind of it was like a real weird it was experimental sort of we tried a few different ways and ended up comping a bunch of stuff um yeah so it was definitely the original concept was to do it all live with the remote truck and we got that but there was a lot of uh background noise and just certain things that you know elliot the engineer elliot shiner grammy winning you know for he won a million grammys and the producer he also produced all the eagles records and you know just elliot is a genius of sound he he hated the fact that we didn't have that pristine steely dan thing going on but we didn't want we didn't want that but there was so there'd be times when especially for the hip-hop stuff when we wanted to really turn the snare drum up and the bass drum and elliot could he hated it he was like okay i'm just gonna leave the room I'm not going to look at the board. You guys make that move and pu- push the faders up and I'll pretend like I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to and you you let me know when it's done. I'll come <laughs> back in and I'm not going to look cuz I don't want to get an ulcer. <laughs> so just you you guys do it and then when you're happy with it, I'll come back and I'll keep mixing from there, but just I don't want to see it because if I see it, I'm going to hit somebody. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, you know, yeah, it was it was really to, to learn, getting and you know being around those guys was it's it was just a great uh, learning experience and the stories they have oh my god and just just and they're dynamic they've worked together for so long and spent so much time together they it was like an Abbott and Costello routine every between Gary and Elliot like just watching them just they just crack you up man they're so it's really we got so lucky and they also ended up producing repercussions record like yeah that was the other thing like after after uh gary got assigned to warner brothers he was like okay now what's going on with this this singing band what's the what's the deal with that let's check that out maybe we can sign that too what do you think lenny (laughs) and lenny was like yeah whatever fine okay sign him yeah <laughs> that's that's when you know people. You just get like it's crazy. Like it was so nuts. So they produced both of our records, but it was done very different approach. Repercussions was done more with that old school Steely Dan style production. Mm-hmm. You know where where it was like very uh, slow and meticulous, and everything had to be perfect. And we you know when we needed when we needed horn players, we would be like, let's get the guys from Groove Collective, and they were like, no 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 no. We're calling in our session guys. They'd be like, "Okay, Lou Marini, get Lou Marini on the phone. Oh, get me." Geez. Like they just start calling up like the top heavyweight guys. They even brought in. There was some some part of the the session where Genji and Genji's a great drummer. We love Genji, and but they were Elliot and Gary were like, mm, mm, "We we love Genji too, but it's not quite the right feel for this. Let's get Purdy." Get Bernard Purdy on the phone. We were like, oh, "What? Shit. 
Wow. Yeah, and, and Purdy came in, <laughs> and this Purdy Purdy is hilarious. I mean, this guy, not a humble dude. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> apparently, apparently, he takes credit for things that he's pl- that he hasn't played on. Like you'll ask him, so so pretty. Have you played on this? Yeah, I played on that. I played on everything. Yeah, that that's basically the deal. He he came in immediately, just like talking shit about like. All right, what is this? Oh, you want me to play on this? Just one song? One song. I played 12 songs with the Rolling Stones in one session. I played 18 songs at one time with the, the Beatles. Uh, what was it? He just, he just started dropping names like, in the first five minutes. We were just like, <laughs> we were like, dude, you don't have to prove who you are. We know who you are. Like, please. But the crazy thing was, I got to say, we had a song that had a really uh, intricate arrangement. And, you know, of course, Purdy, had, we, we had sent him all the stuff to listen to and learn it. And, and he came in the studio. We were like, okay, you ready to do it? He was like, no, nah, I haven't heard the song. We were like, well, we sent it to you. He was like, yeah, I didn't listen to it. Just play it for <laughs> me one time. And we were like, um, it's kind of it's kind of a lot of changes and stops. He said, just play it for me one time. I'm Purdy. I'm Purdy. He kept saying that. I'm Purdy. <laughs> We were like, okay. We played it for him one time. He's like, all right, I'm ready now. We were like, but you should listen to it again. He's like, I, I'm ready now. I'm ready. I'm party. Let's go. <laughs> so we were like, okay. Count it in. And he counted it in. And he played it perfectly in one take. We were just like, wow. And he and he came out. He was like, what, you surprised? You surprised? I'm party. Didn't I tell you? <laughs> We were just like, all right, yes, you are, you are pretty, sir. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, there were there were some real heavyweights who played on that record, but it just took a long time. It was one of those things where it was like a yin yang of Groove Collective. Like Groove Collective, we we did it pretty fast, and we kind of got our advance up front and split it, and just kept moving and doing gigs and started, you know, touring and stuff. But repercussions was like, no, we you know, we had a bigger budget because we had an R and B singer, a woman singer, and and one of the guys in the Danny who I'd played with from college, mm-hmm. he was more kind of a business minded and he saw that he's he saw the the way that Warner Brothers worked and he was like, Let's let's try to milk this thing. And so he said, instead of taking the big advance, let's let's get salaries. So we we had salaries. We had we were making like we we paid ourselves a weekly salary for like ten months while we made this record. Wow. <laughs> we were living large, dude. It was ridiculous. It was so. At in the in the final product, it didn't help the music at all. I think we should have done it quicker. And you know, you learn. You you live and learn. You know, it's one of those things. You're young. No, totally. You don't know. Totally. But we were happy to have the money and experience and all that and river sound became like our second home but it was also kind of like while all this was had this 10-month process the groove collective record had already come out and was doing great and we were starting to tour and so you know it was like me and jonathan and genji were like listen these are the times when we can do sessions for repercussions the re- we can schedule it in our calendar but the red we got to do gigs man we're not we're not trying to make repercussions our whole thing. And there was a little bit of a conflict with that, but ultimately, you know, everybody understood that going into it. You know, it's like Groove totally. Collective became, it was more fun for us as well. It was like a, 
it was less formatted. It was, you know, when, once you do R&B, you get stuck in this radio thing and, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of, you're limited by what you can do musically. And also you, you, the same that, like I told you about Gary and Elliot with their sonic audio expectations, you, you just get stuck in this thing of everything has to sound perfect and, you know, Groove Collective was not about perfection. We were just kind of like, let's get it as good as we can and keep it moving, you know? <laughs> well, the thing that I've noticed about listening to a bunch of Groove Collective, and I have listened to a bunch of Groove Collective, especially lately now that I have a lot of time on my hands and I can really do deep dives and, like, try and transcribe right, right. some of the stuff. It's, right. it's definitely – you can definitely hear how much fun you're having in the music. and you can yeah. def- And you can definitely hear, like – as well, um, sort of the, the 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 metamorphosis of ideas as you're playing them, um, right, right. And in in that way, certain songs, I would say, get better as the as as the tune goes forward. Like, yeah, one of the yeah. songs. I, I think I, I might butcher the pronunciation of this, and I'm terribly sorry. Uh, track seven off of the first Groove Collective record, El Golpe Visa. If I'm yeah, saying that that's right, it. Uh-huh, um, yeah, it starts off kind of like you're not sure entirely where it's gonna go, and then all of a sudden, by the middle of it, it's got that blaring horn sound, and you're like, "Whoa, this has turned into a really cool song." Not that it was a bad yeah. song at the start, but it was like you weren't entirely yeah. sure where it was going, and then it goes there. Yeah, that's how it was written because basically, I think on that one, I can't exact. I think for a lot of our songs, like the rhythm section, we would start a groove. And then maybe one horn player would start playing and riffing. And then another horn player would say, hey, I have a part for this section. And then that would be that blaring cool section. You'd be like, oh, that's cool. And then another horn guy or the keyboard or, or Bill on Vibes would say, I have a, a change, a, a, a B section that we can go to, like a chord change after that horn thing. And so we kind of would put these songs together in pieces and and figure out if we liked the the way all the pieces worked and if we did we'd keep it but it wasn't like uh we would write the whole thing from the at from the start it was like okay we have this section now let's we have this other section oh and somebody would say oh i have a thing that goes with that let's add that thing and it, it just kind of was like a puzzle that we were putting together but we didn't know what the outcome would be until it was done and then when it was done we'd be like oh yeah that was the thing Mm-hmm. That was the thing, and that's what Algopia Visa. It me. It actually means um, when you hit it, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what it means. Uh, so yeah, it's a. It was a very. It's a very cool creative process, and the thing about that band is, because of our chemistry, and because we always had that vibe. Whenever we can go months, years without all jamming together, but when we do play together, it it's instant. That chemistry is right back. It doesn't, we can all argue and hate each other right before we start playing. But once we are on our instruments, it's that vibe is back. It's just magic. It's chemistry. Right. And, and the music it's definitely a, reflects that. Yeah. It's a thing. And it's like, yeah, and there, there's, you know, some guys in the band who, you know, over the years, there's been all these beef and, and different issues and this and that. But, ultimately you know the music is bigger than that so that's the thing you know when when we play all that stuff gets put to the side you know it's just 
I think all, all what happens with bands also as you get older is each person wants to have their own kind of expression of like this is not that's not a group expression. They want to be able to express themselves individually with complete ideas that weren't like pieces that were put together. So, you know, I think now as we're approaching like the 30th anniversary of the Groove Collective first record, which I can't believe, everybody in the band has done stuff, all kinds of stuff, had solo things and different various projects and careers and kids and families and lived all over the world and still living all over the world. But I, I sense we're, we're, we talk all the time. That's been one good thing about social media. We're all talking all the time now. I, I sense that people understand now. We appreciate how special that connection is. So it took some time. It just took 30 years for us to appreciate it. <laughs> 30 years and a whole lot of career paths. Yeah, a whole lot of paths, man. But, you know, as you get older, you start to realize, hey, that, that actually was some magical thing. It wasn't just us being stupid kids. Like, we actually hit something. Right. And we got we got a that's the thing you don't you don't really know when it's happening how special it is sometimes, you know? So if you got a good thing, man, you got to just hang on to it while it's happening because things change quick and who knows what tomorrow will bring, you know, but in those moments, you just got to milk them, man. Just make max it out. Max it out. fun to have my uncle g on the show you know when someone in your family inspires you as much as gordon has inspired me with his music it's really cool just to talk about it and listen to the process for me being a total groove collective fanboy it was super fun to learn how they wrote and how they recorded i don't know about you but i find it an interesting process you know i listen to the first groove collective record at least in part like every day and I've always been curious how they did those sessions. What was really cool for me in this conversation was getting the insight of how that record was recorded both live and in the studio, which made me understand that record more than I ever have, and it gave me an extra appreciation for it. Uncle G, thank you for being on the show. It was rad to catch up and a blast for me to totally fanboy out on you. I love you, man, and I hope we can collaborate on a song soon. Oh, and for those of you who haven't heard it, go check out Groove Collective's 1994 self-titled release. And while you're at it, check out some of their other records too. I gotta tell you guys, their book is crazy good. Also, make sure to give my Uncle G some love and check out his new releases on Bandcamp at nappyg.bandcamp.com.
This is Gear Talk, a show about gear I have in the studio, some gear that I'm going to get soon, hopefully, and some gear that I hope to get someday, a piece of dream gear. Now, today I'm talking about the second most vital part of any recording studio, at least any home recording studio, and that is our audio interfaces. Now, in big professional studios like uh, Hyde Street Studio here in San Francisco, where I live, um, one may have uh, digital to analog converters and analog to digital converters, usually fronted by a console or individual analog preamps, compressors, outboard EQs, things like that. However, for us in home studios, we use audio interfaces, which give us all that functionality in one box. Here in my studio, I have two separate interfaces that I'm using as one, a Focusrite Liquid Sapphire 56 and a very first generation Focusrite Scarlet 18i20. Now I'm using the Sapphire 56 as my main interface and I'm using the 18i20 as an ADAT expansion preamp so I get 16 channels out of my Focusrite gear. Now on top of those two, I also have a Behringer ADA8800. Uh, it's another different kind of 8-channel ADAT expansion preamp, which allows me to get 24 ins out of my Focusrite interface. And for right now, they work great. They do exactly what I need them to do, and they're solid for the time being. However, eventually, I would like to get something a little bit more robust perhaps get something from the Focusrite Claret range for my main interface and some better ADAT upgrades to my preamps. That would allow me to have newer and better sounding digital conversion for my studio as well as far better preamps, in my opinion, than the ones that perhaps the Scarlet first generation has to offer stock. Now, if money were no object and I could save up and get what I really want, I would, of course, go for something by Universal Audio. Namely, I've been thinking about the Universal Audio Apollo 16, which has so many options we could talk about for days and days. Now, the problem with the UA Apollo 16 is that it's DB25 only and only has line-ins, so it is very much a studio-grade digital-to-analog and analog-to-digital converter. However, with the advent of preamps from companies like Focusrite with their range of ISA preamps, my particular favorite being the ISA 828, one can expand that to have interface-like features just with those boxes, not having to use a console. Now. That investment would be many thousands of dollars, so that's quite a bit down the road for me. But it is certainly a nice dream to have.
This is Music from Blue Girl, a segment about music we're working on here at the studio. Today I have a piece of music that I've been working on for a solo release that doesn't even have a name yet. This particular one is very heavily influenced and inspired by the music of Cueo and Rudnell, that is, Chico Cueo and Dave Rudnell, both of whom are very dear friends of mine, and both of whom I collaborate with frequently. This particular song I wrote on nylon string and have recorded on nylon string as well. In the current mix, it is very bare bones, with just a nylon string guitar, a steel string acoustic doubling it, an electric bass track, and a very, very quiet drum track with brushes on the snare. For today's episode, I will only be giving you a sample from the intro to the first verse, but be sure to tune in to future episodes of Ready to Record to hear how this song progresses. Enjoy! That's our show, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Gordon Abbey G. Clay, my very own Uncle G. It was a pleasure, a privilege, and an honor to have you on the show. And I really hope we can make some music together soon. It has been far, far, far too long. Tune in next time. We're going to have Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, and total synth nerd Mr. Billy J. Stein on the program. We'll be talking everything from his work on Broadway, working on the Carol King musical Beautiful, as well as Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark with Bono and the Edge, and his studio, Strange Cranium Manhattan, where he has a collection of over 100 synths and keyboards. It's going to be a really fun one. I hope you check it out. For all my fellow home studio friends, show us some pictures of your audio interfaces. I'm really interested to see what you got going on. Tag me on Instagram and Facebook. It is at the D3 official on Instagram and the D3 on Facebook. I'm really curious to see what you got going on. I'm really excited to get inspired by your rigs, and I really want to know what you like and what you dislike about your own rigs. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you from the studio. But for now, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. For more episodes of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios, check out bluegirlproductions.net and pantheonpodcast.com.